Welcome to the Make It Work podcast brought to you by the team behind EpicWorks.com. Make It Work podcast is all about technology, product management and entrepreneurship. Our goal is to learn from the best in the industry. Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Make It Work podcast. My guest today is Clement Cow. Clement is the founder of Product Teacher, a product management education company with the mission of creating accessible and effective resources for a global community of product managers, founders, innovators, and entrepreneurs. Product Teacher offers self-paced courses, career coaching, corporate training, and other professional development services. As an ex-principal product manager, Clement has shipped 10 plus, I would assume, multi-million dollar B2B software products and dozens of smaller ones. Um, over the last five years at multiple startups. Clement has also written, um, and this is how I got to know Clement, uh, impressively 150 plus product management best practice articles, um, and has been a feature speaker and writer for 100 plus different organizations. So with that impressive um, (laughs) profile, Clement, um, I'm super happy to have you on the show. Welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Um, so there's so much in there that um, rather than asking you to share your journey, I would just ask you to keep sharing your journey throughout this conversation. Um, I would want sure, us to yeah. um, jump off from Ben Horowitz's um, Good Product Manager, Bad Product Manager. Um, I think it's been about 15 years um, since that article was written. Um, what did you make of it? Do you think it's still relevant? Did it make any sense to you um, when you read it? Yeah, so I think um, the really great thing about good product manager, bad product manager, right, is it started to set standards around what are the core things that really help to define this particular role. And so that has been a really amazing jumping off point. Uh, kind of before that, it was quite difficult for people to really know what is product management. Um, and so, you know, that was very much a definitional uh, kind of position um, that it, it came out, right? I think one of the things, though, that has happened over time is we're starting to see a lot more specialization uh, within product management and with the other roles that are associated with it, right? So um, there's definitely the rise of product analytics, there's product operations, there's product marketing. And the great thing is that that means that product managers can really focus on kind of the core components of creating value for customers, for businesses, et cetera. Um, And so I think, you know, it's still relevant today um, good product manager, bad product manager. But I would say that it needs to be a little bit more, I phrase it, it can definitely be refined further to uh, meet kind of modern day needs, modern day specializations. Um, but otherwise, in terms of first principles, it's still very, very relevant. And so that's still a really great place for people to get started in terms of, hey, you know, what is product management? And how do I make sure that, you know, I've got the right skill sets, I've got the right experiences to really succeed um, in this role, for sure. Thank you for that. Um, I'm just going to read a bit of an excerpt. Um, in fact, the, the beginning of the sure. article. Um, good product managers know the market, the product, the product line, and the competition extremely well and operate from a strong basis of knowledge and confidence. Uh, a good product manager is the CEO of the product. Um, a good product manager takes full responsibility and measures uh, themselves in terms of the success of the product. They are responsible for the right product, right time, and all that entails and the article goes on a bit more. Um, and then bad mm-hmm. product managers have lots of excuses. Not enough funding. The engineering manager is an idiot. Microsoft has 10 times as many engineers working on it. I'm overworked. I don't get enough direction. 
Barksdale doesn't make these kind of excuses and neither should the CEO of a product. I don't know what Barksdale is or was. Um, perhaps it is a reference to something. But when I read this, you know what comes to my mind? It's just extremely easy to be a bad product manager and very difficult to be a good product manager because it is very demanding, all those things that I mentioned there. Yeah, I think one of the things to call out, though, is a good product manager uh, is good in context, right? And so what I mean by that is if you have other partners that you're working with within the organization who are holding up their end of it, um, it makes it much easier to be an excellent product manager. Whereas if you don't have kind of that organizational support, it's really hard to be excellent at product. And so what I mean by that is um, something that is really great is that we see that in terms of engineering, um, more and more folks are moving towards what's known as product engineering, right? Where the engineers aren't just looking at, hey, you know, I'm going to write this thing instruction by instruction. It's more, nope, I'm going to push back against the product manager. I know that we could do this better. Like this is the actual user pain that we're going after. And so I'm going to counter propose something to this implementation. Let's go this way instead, right? And so when engineering is stepping up to the plate and yielding, hey, well, here are these other product ideas that we're thinking about. Here are the different trade-offs and implementations. It's so much easier to be a better product manager because then you can actually see kind of the full scope of, well, what are the different trade-offs? Like, what are the different ways in which we can actually get to the finish line, even if we're constrained on resources, even if we're constrained on time, right? Uh, we see that, you know, if we are able to have really empowered designers, right, product designers, um, it removes a lot of the immediate stressors, I think, in terms of product, where many times, right, your design counterparts will actually know even more about um, competitive designs. So They'll even know uh, in terms of, other industries, right? What are their best practices? And so it removes some of the pressure in terms of the product manager needing to be kind of omniscient and like knowing everything about everything. Um, we can have more of that delegation to design in terms of what are really the design best practices. We can delegate more to engineering in terms of technical best practices. And that makes it easier for us to uh, really excel um, in the role. And so the reason why I say this, right, is product management is very much multiplicative, right? Like if you have a really amazing design team, engineering team, go-to-market team, then it's much easier for you to hit really large metrics. On the flip side, you know, if you're, if you're working with teams that are not quite as uh, modernized yet in terms of what is engineering's role, what is design's role, what is the go-to-market role, it's going to be much harder for you to move those metrics. But that doesn't mean that you're not a good product manager, right? Because you're multiplying off of a base that is smaller. And so really the way that I see it is if we're going to be measuring product managers on um, objectively, um, how well are you doing? It's all about, you know, what is that multiplicative factor that you bring to the table, right? So if the organization right, was able to, um, you know, make however much millions in revenue and the product manager comes in and now we're able to multiply that by two times, three times, right? Um, that is a pretty good measure. Whereas, you know, if we're just looking at it from absolute numbers, right? Um, hey, you know, some product manager joins Google, Google's already making, you know, multiple billions and, and then, you know, that product manager releases something that you can then attribute, you know, a hundred, uh, sorry, you can attribute, you know, more than a million dollars to them. That doesn't mean that much in that context, right? Because it's, hey, well, Google already has such a large base. And so it's easier for someone to, quote unquote, look good if you look at absolute numbers. But in terms of the actual impact that they've created, it's less so, right? Because the, the factor is less. And so what I really want to call out, right, is we should be measuring product managers based on how much more likely they enable an organization to hit that really multiplicative impact 
um, rather than necessarily the absolute numbers that are coming across, just because it really does depend on kind of the partners that you're working with. Um, it's much easier to be a really excellent product manager and to really be able to dance between all the different constraints if design and engineering is practically surfacing that to you. If your go-to-market team is correctly setting customer expectations, it is really hard to be a good product manager if your go-to-market teams are repeatedly committing things to customers that they shouldn't be if your engineers are not stepping up to the plate, if your design team is more like production art and not necessarily really thinking about the user experience, um, really understanding uh, kind of what are the core needs of folks. Um, so yeah, so that's really how I think about it. Of course, those aren't excuses, right? If you are in an organization where you don't have those empowered counterparts, it is up to you to continue to grow those folks into those roles, but that doesn't necessarily reflect poorly on you. It's just, hey, you're in a context that's a lot harder, right? And so there's a lot more growth opportunity available by changing, by, by evolving those organizational partners in design, engineering, go-to-market, um, rather than focusing just on the craft of the product itself. And so that's really how I think about um, how a really excellent product manager who might be in an organization where they're not yet set up to succeed, their levers are not going to be in product management. Their levers are actually going to be leveling up their cross-functional counterparts so that they can go and build these really amazing products. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that um, perspective. Um, it's it's something that, that I've been wondering about, but never obviously could quite put it in those words. Um, when I think about um, quality of product management um, or the experience of a product mm -hmm. manager, let's say bad is on one end of the spectrum and good or great is on the other end. Based on what, what Ben was saying, um, bad seems to be somebody who's, who feels disempowered um, and, uh, in his words, is mm -hmm. making excuses and good seems to be the person who seems to take a lot of initiative right? Um, they're on top of the market, yeah. they're doing their research, they're, they're managing their stakeholders, they're reporting well, they're, they're succeeding. And so it seems that the journey from not so good to good is in that line of taking on more responsibility, gaining more understanding of yeah, the various exactly. domains. And, um, and thank you for bringing the other part to that of actually getting the best out of your counterparts and helping them kind of upgrade as well. Yeah, exactly. I think um, it, it really just depends on the context that the product manager is working in. And you're exactly right, right? It's all about, you know, are you taking charge of actually making things happen, right? If you find that kind of your highest return on investment lever is no longer doing market research, but actually changing the way that um, design is working or changing the way that engineering is working or changing the way that customer success is working, those are levers that you need to pull, right? It's not in your job description to pull those levers, but you're not there just to build a product. You're there to build a process, right? Like product managers are really there to build up the cultures and the engines that drive really amazing products, right? And so the product is not necessarily the end output. It's really kind of that broader culture and process that we're really in charge of, so yeah. So I wanna explore this um, on two levels. Um, I wanna explore this from your perspective. Is this how your career developed sure. um, in the sense that you took on more and more responsibility on one hand um, and two, um, what you just mentioned of taking responsibility in different areas or seeing when it is time to seize one activity um, and highlight or emphasize another, 
uh, another because I can imagine that you know as a company grows in the beginning you might be focused on your team but the company grows and now you need to add the skill of being able to work across multiple teams um, you know before there was one founder who was also the CEO and the CCO and now you suddenly have CFO CCO CEO and CXO and now you have to work with them so suddenly the the parameters do change so tell us a bit about that from from your perspective from from your journey yeah, for sure. Um, so for folks who don't know, uh, my journey into product management was actually quite accidental. And so I did not know that I wanted to become a product manager. Um, right before I became a PM, I was actually a user researcher. And so the way in which I had turned into a product manager was very much jumping into, hey, you know, we don't have people who are trying to solve this problem that I see. Well, why shouldn't I solve it, right? It's not in my job description, but it should get solved. And so what happened at that time was basically um, our company, we were trying to break into this new market. We were trying to go after these new customers. And so um, I was the user researcher in charge of better understanding, hey, who is this new market segment, right? Kind of what are their needs and how is that different from our current customer base? And we were able to find that, you know, there are all of these really interesting attributes about this new market segment and that we happen to be positioned really well where we could actually spin up a new business um, and be able to capture value by creating value for them. And so at the time, right, I said, hey, you know, here is um, what we learned from user research. Um, here's the proposal, right? Like we should go after this market, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what happened was my CEO reached out to our current product team and he said, hey, you know, can anyone jump into this new line of business that, you know, Clement has helped to flesh out for us? Everyone said, no, you're crazy, right? Like we are busy running a current business that's worth, you know, um, tens of millions of dollars, go find someone else to do it. And so, you know, the CEO was thinking, oh, well, um, you know, if I need to go find another product manager, then we're going to have to go and recruit for folks. Then we're going to need to take all of this time. Maybe someone's going to jump into the space or actually, Clement, you've been pitching us on trying to jump into this market. And so like, you clearly understand who the customers are, you clearly understand what the business looks like. Um, why don't you step in? I was like, oh, like I'm a user researcher, but I don't see why I couldn't step in, right? Like as long as I understand, you know, what is the role of the product manager? How is um, kind of what are the pains that my designers and engineers have? What are they looking for in a product manager? If I can absorb all of these things, then sure, like I can jump into the segment, um, even though no one else is going to go do so. And so um, I very much treated my, I think I was very lucky, I think to start as a user researcher because I did all of these deep dives with design and engineering counterparts of, hey, well, what does your process look like, right? I'm totally new to product management. I don't even know what it looks like. What are your pains? What have you seen work well with other product managers? What have you seen not work so well? And so we were able to build up all of this trust together because they were helping to educate me on, hey, well, this is what product looks like. Here's how design gets involved. Here's how engineering gets involved. And by doing so, we were able to, within six months, launch a business line that was larger in revenue than our current business lines, right? And so it was me, um, you know, earning basically twice the amount of money as kind of the other 10 product managers within the organization, right? And we were able to do that because I had basically said, well, I'm not going to let myself be constrained by, you know, my job responsibilities as like, hey, you're a user researcher, so go talk to users. It's no, I want to create value. And the value here is we've found these users, we found the pains, we have a real way to actually go solve these pains and create value for the business, we should go do this, right? Like, I don't want to only be a user researcher anymore, right? Like, I want to create more value. And so um, that was something that was, how do I phrase it? I think that fits into what you mentioned before, right, of empowerment, 
um, a lot of my own career and its trajectory has very much been defined by, well, even if formally speaking, I don't have these levers, I don't have this influence, I don't have these responsibilities, I don't see why I can't make an impact. I don't see why we shouldn't go solve these pains, right? It's all about, well, even though there are these different issues, I don't see why I can't try to go fix them, right? And so something that, um, as another example, right? I think um, at that point in time, we were trying to release this um, additional product. And so basically this was um, maybe I think six or 12 months after um, we had spun up this new market segment. One of the things that we were trying to do is we were trying to drive this integration to a strategic partner for the company. And so we were working alongside this partner. And one of the things that was really challenging was, hey, you know, <clears throat> uh, we have our own team. They have their own engineers, right? And so things kept falling by the wayside when the two teams weren't coordinating together. And at first it was very much a blame game, right? Like we would say, oh, well, you know, they didn't give us this part of the spec. And then they would say, well, you didn't give us this part of the spec. And so there was a lot of finger pointing and there was just a lot of challenges. But one of the kind of the critical insights that um, I eventually realized is, well, hey, you know, we're trying to go build something together. We're trying to create value together. And so instead of us just, you know, cycling around on, well, oh no, it's not our fault, right? Like we're the ones doing the right thing. It's no, 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 let's just break down this barrier, right? Like let, there should not be this silo of it's our company and their company. It's we are one joint development team trying to take these two things and like pull them together, right? Because even within your existing organization, right? Like you have engineers who work on uh, different code bases or they work on different microservices and they're able to coordinate, right? And so why, why can't we? Like, why can't we coordinate across um, these company barriers? And so we started doing kind of these um, joint retrospectives. We started doing joint sprint rituals. We started doing joint specking. We started doing all of this joint work together where we basically said, let's just forget that we're part of two different companies. We're just one team. We're gonna get all of this stuff done. And from there, I think we were able to overcome a lot more challenges of just, hey, you know, instead of us blaming the other person, right, we're gonna assume good intent. And it's, hey, you know, I need this from you. I'm seeing that this thing isn't there. Can you help me close the gap? And it's like, oh, instead of us saying defensively, oh, well, no, that's totally your fault. It's, oh, okay, sure. Like I got you, I'll step in and I'll, I'll make sure that you can succeed because we're in this together. And so was it my job to, increase the morale of the partner company? No, like that wasn't my job, but that was the most effective thing to do, right? In terms of return on investment play, it's not, oh, Clement, come up with another uh, product for us to launch, right? It's not, oh, Clement, um, you know, do all this market research. The highest return on investment lever that I could pull is we need to break down this coordination silo between us and the other uh, organization. And so I think that really goes to demonstrate, right? The like product management is all about driving the highest return on investment work that you can possibly do. And it's not always going to be the product. It's not always going to be the market. Sometimes it's just coordination. Sometimes it's um, making sure that people have the right incentives to work together. And so that's another example, right, of um, a really good product manager doesn't just fault that, hey, you know, this partner that we're working with, they're so hard to work with, right? It's no, it doesn't matter that they're in another organization. It's my job to make sure that they succeed too. And so I'm going to jump in and we're going to try to figure this out together. Um, and so I think that really goes back and speaks to that empowerment mindset um, that, you know, Ben Horowitz called out in good PM, bad PM. It's all about if something is wrong, if something is broken, right? Like the, the first instinct should not be to point fingers. The first instinct should be, 
is this something that I can help fix? And if so, why am I not, why am I not fixing it? Right. And so like, that's really kind of the um, instinct that we want to grow over time. It's not, Hey, something's wrong. You know, we should panic. It's, Hey, something's wrong. We can fix it. We can make this better. And so by doing so, we're able to unlock more return on investment for our users, for our customers and for um, our companies. Yeah. Wow. That, that Thank you for such an, such an amazing story. There's so many topics in there. Um, but I want to focus in on um, on two things. Um, how much of a role does um, creativity and curiosity play in this? Because everything that you're saying, um, you know, if I think about it in my in my own practice and the people that I've worked with, it's the creative people who who somehow have this process going where they're not just stuck on the feature and the ROI and the monthly active users on a particular aspect of the product. Uh, it's the creative ones who are also looking at how, how the team is working together, um, essentially looking for any levers that they can pull uh, to, to improve that ROI without necessarily changing anything in code. Um, and that takes a lot of creativity and, and curiosity to think in those terms. And I wonder if your past background in user research somehow prepared you or have you always been like that or how did you come to that? Because uh, it doesn't seem to be that common. Yeah, that's a great question. And so, um, yeah, I think user research was really valuable for my particular product management mindset because what I learned from users is when, when you're talking to people, right, when they are faced with a problem, they don't think immediately, oh, well, I'm going to try to go use this feature. Right? They think, well, I've got this problem. There are all these different ways that I could go get it solved. Right? They think about, oh, well, maybe I could ask a friend to do this for me. Maybe I can adopt a different process. And so you start to see that, you know, when people are making decisions in terms of what behavior do I want to have um, so that I can go solve a particular pain in my life, you see that they're very divergent, right? You see that, you know, people aren't just thinking about, oh, well, you know, let's say that I want to, um, you know, let's say that I want to have dinner um, for five people today and, you know, I don't have the ingredients on hand. Well, there are lots of ways in which they could go get that solved. Right? Mm -hmm. They could order takeout. They could make it a potluck where everyone's bringing food. They could cook the food themselves and like do a grocery run. They could have someone deliver the groceries to them. There are all these different ways to solve that same problem. And so when you see that, hey, you know, people are tackling things in such different uh, such different form factors, that is really inspiring to then be able to take back into the practice of product management, right? We don't say, oh, well, the reason why our metrics aren't moving is because, you know, the products that we shipped aren't cool enough. A lot of times it's, no, there's an adoption problem, right? Like maybe people just don't understand what the value is. And so we need to go back and work on um, the marketing, or maybe it's not the marketing part. Maybe it's more of the adoption part. And just like we have too many barriers in terms of friction, how do we onboard people better, right? How do we work with customer support? How do we work with account management um, to really ensure that we've got that adoption? And so you're exactly right. Many times product can actually move metrics upward with no code changes, right? Like you can actually drive much larger impacts by um, better understanding how are people actually using your product and what are the challenges that they have in terms of using it successfully? I think what I've really seen, right, is in terms of user research, the thing that helped me the most is understanding that the product is not the end goal for any user. The real end goal that they have is I want to change my behavior. I want to change my process for the better. And the product is simply a tool for that. And so if we can get them 
to that new behavior, get them to that new process, that's the win, right? And so product is only one of the many different levers that are available to us as product managers. Um, I think one of the challenging things just of product management, right, is like, even though the title itself says product, like we kind of assume then, oh, well, it has to just be the thing that we're building, but product managers are really much more problem managers, right? Like there's some problem at hand for the company, for the users. Um, what are the different levers that are available to us that is not necessarily just designer engineering, what is what are the ways in which we can change how people perceive our product, how they adopt our product, how the product itself is actually built. And so, yeah, I think um, coming from user research has been incredibly valuable. And that's why I think, you know, a lot of times when I see, you know, hey, there are these different job requisites right? that say, oh, well, you have to have been a product manager before, or they say you have to have been an engineer before. Um, I think that is sometimes short-sighted for a lot of organizations because they're missing out on all of these interesting perspectives that can unlock a lot bigger returns on investment for the company. Um, when someone comes from, let's say, a humanities background, when someone comes from, let's say, a user research background, or when someone comes from like a support background, right? like they have a lot of perspectives that can be valuable for the particular problem that the organization is trying to solve. Um, and so kind of that is, that's why I encourage people that if you're interested in product, it's not that, how do I phrase this? If you want to become a product manager, it's not so much, hey, you know, I specifically want to be a product manager at Facebook or Google. It's more about, I've got some set of skills and out there, there are all these different companies that have different kinds of pains. Which kinds of organizations can I best um, help with their specific pains using my specific skill set, right? It's all about that product market fit where we ourselves are the product and hiring organizations are the market. And so there are all these different kinds of customers out there. They have all these different pains. If we can understand that, you know, hey, Someone who's trying to launch a totally new product, that company is very different from a company that's trying to scale a product to be three times bigger than it used to be. And we understand that there's that skill set difference. We can position ourselves a lot more effectively to then be able to go after the organizations that will value us the most. And so that's really what I see in terms of unlocking that value is if we want to be able to create the most value possible for users and companies, it's all about where will our skills be most appreciated? What is the maximum impact that we can unlock because of the perspectives that we have? Right? And so that's really how I think about um, bringing these different experiences to um, the practice of product management. Right. So as you mentioned, the, the particular skill set will, will vary from organization to organization and also the, the level of complexity of the product in the market. Um, but when you talk about the product mindset or the product management mindset, um, it sounds like you're talking about a problem-solving mindset. Um, or could, could you elaborate yeah. a bit on, on the mindset that is, um, that is needed? For sure. So when we think about, right, like, hey, an organization is looking for a product manager, ultimately, at the end of the day, that organization is in pain. So to be clear, most companies they don't put up job requisites just for you to be able to take those jobs. They put them up because they're struggling. Like they have something that they want to do and they can't do it with the current set of people that they have, right? Like maybe they don't have the right skill sets or maybe they already have too much work to do and so we don't have enough bandwidth. And so if we can understand that, hey, an organization, when they put up a job requisite, it's not that, you know, oh, it'd be so great to hire this person. It's I am actually in intense distress. Right. Like we cannot continue on the way that we currently are. We need to bring on more people. We're willing to pay all of this time and money to recruit a new product manager. When we understand that they're in pain, then we can immediately understand, OK, 
it's not about the prestige that we bring to the table. Right? It's not about, hey, you know, I have, you know, whatever brand name schools or I have whatever um, particular, you know, company background. It's more about what are the ways in which I can solve that problem for them. Right? And so if, let's say, an organization is saying, well, I really need someone to help us break into these new markets. Well, if you happen to run, um, if you happen to already have deep knowledge and expertise in that particular segment, you're likely a lot more attractive to that organization than if they're trying to scale a product that is in an industry that you don't have exposure to before. Right. And so um, it's all about, well, what is the problem that they have? And is this something that I can, um, in good faith, say, yeah, I actually can stand out here. Like, this is something that I'm actually quite good at and I can bring a lot of value to the table. Right. Um, on the flip side there are a lot of products that are a lot more technical, right? Like if you are working, let's say to build out Stripe's APIs or you're working to build out, you know, um, Plaid or Yieldly, which are all like very like infrastructure API based, well, then we want folks who come from engineering, right? Because your end customers are actually engineers. Like they are actually going to be taking your APIs and implementing them. And so you do want to be really technical, right? And if you're someone who comes more from a business perspective and you're trying to jam yourself into this role where you need that deep technical expertise, it's just a product market fit mismatch. It doesn't mean that you're a bad product manager. Mm -hmm. It just means that you don't have the fit. But if you have so much experience, like let's say you, are, you used to be a VC investor, right? And you're all about being able to identify, here are these new bets that we should go invest in kind of in early stage. And then there's an organization that says, hey, we already have a flagship product that's already earning us, you know, multiple hundreds of millions a year. And we're trying to launch an incubator where we're trying to jump into these new spaces. Well, you're going to be great for that role, right? And someone who is more technically minded, someone who is much more from the engineering side, they might not be able to jump into that more like VC oriented launch new products type role, right? And so you can clearly see that, you know, even though you might have these two different candidates, right? One who's from VC, one who's from engineering. It's not about whether they're good or bad kind of universally. It's more about what is the fit to the organization's needs. If someone's trying to build out a technical product, you need more of a technical mindset. If someone's trying to launch all of these new, um, trying to launch all these new initiatives and all of these new uh, industries and verticals, well, that VC mindset of being able to vet these different bets and come up with really crisp investment theses, that is really powerful, right? So it's really about identifying what are my strengths and what are the pains that I can most meaningfully solve so that I can go solve that problem on their behalf, right? When a company identifies that, oh, well, you can actually solve my problems, they will drop everything to try to bring you on board, right? Because they'll say, you're the solution. I don't need to go look anymore, right? Like if we can just bring you on board, this problem will disappear and we can go move on with our lives. Right. And so um, I think a lot of times people are too indexed on oh, well, I need to make sure that I say the right thing in the interview or that, you know, I need to make sure that I have a firm handshake, maintain eye contact. Yeah, like you do need to have like generally good like interview hygiene. But the more important part is, did you even have product market fit to begin with? Like, can you communicate that this is the value that you're going to bring to the table to solve that problem for that company? Because if you can, then they're going to say, without a doubt, we need this person, right? Like maybe they're stuttering a little bit within an interview. That's okay, we can train that, right? You know, maybe um, in terms of some of the, Smaller things like, let's say, like dress code is like maybe not all the way there. But if they know how to solve that problem, we will forgive all of these minor missteps, right? And on the flip side, you can have a very firm handshake. You can have really great eye contact. You can speak very competently. But if you don't have the skills that they're looking for, they're not going to take you, right? And so it's more about what is the core value that I can unlock for this organization? What is the problem that I can solve for them? And is that problem a problem that they care about? Is that something that they need to get solved? And if so, they're more than likely to take you. And so I think that 
Flipping that mindset, I think, moves people out from a position of fear of, oh my gosh, I'm going to say the wrong thing, to a position of strength of, I am a product. I have core value. Maybe I don't have fit with this organization, but I definitely have fit somewhere else. Right? And so then it becomes a lot more fun, basically, to go explore that product market fit when we're looking for that new role. So yeah. I love this. Um, it's, it's almost as if the job starts, um, well, the job is almost always on, right? Even before the interview, you're already looking at the market, perhaps from an internal or personal perspective. Um, it, it's amazing. So we, we started talking about skills and we, we talked about the mindset now. Um, I want to shift gears a bit to um, the teachability of these skills and mindsets uh, uh, and product mm-hmm. teacher, because you decided to switch into that role at some point. Um, tell us a bit about yeah. product teacher. Tell, tell me a bit about what are you focusing on? Do you think all of this can be taught? What kind of people are you working with? Great question. Um, so yeah, so um, before product teacher, uh, what I was doing was I was spending a lot of my free time. So like, let's say um, weekends, late nights, uh, basically helping people in terms of understanding product management, right? So whether they want to break into the space um, or whether they were um, stuck with a particular problem at work, um, I was already giving out all this advice to people on, hey, you know, this is how you would tackle this stuff in product management. And over time, I found that, hey, you know, giving this advice um, kind of one-on-one is somewhat unscalable for me, right? Because, hey, I can only talk to so many people in a day and also a little bit unfair, right? Because um, people have to know that they can reach out to me to then get that advice. And then like, if I don't have time, then what happens And so I said, well, this isn't going to scale. I'm going to start to put down my thoughts. And so I started writing articles. Um, I started writing these essays. And that really started to help a lot more people. Because the work that I've written, right, has been read more than 3 million times, it's pretty clear that, you know, people really do want to learn more about product, right? They really want to be able to um, jump into this new and exciting profession and if they're already in the profession, right, well, there are all these different things that, you know, maybe I don't have a mentor at work, or maybe I'm experiencing a challenge, and I don't know how to go get past it. Can I get another set of eyes on this, right? Like, can I get um, another set of frameworks to help me work through this? And so from there, I started deciding, well, I can make all of this impact in my free time. What if I made it full time, right? How, how can I help even more people? And so that's really kind of the core hypothesis that went into spinning up the product teacher um, company and startup that I'm currently leading is all about, we see that there are a lot of people who are really excited about product, whether they're looking to refine their craft or whether they're looking to jump in for the first time, how do we eliminate the barriers, right? Because I think one of the challenges is, you know, product is still not something that's necessarily taught all that well in school. And even when you become a product manager, right? Like when I first became a PM, it was really hard. I just did not know what I was doing. Um, I just did not have the frameworks there. And so I think a lot of the work that I'm doing is solving for my past self, I think. Um, There was a scared and lost Clement a few years ago (laughs) and it was so painful. And I just, I would never wish that on anyone, right? Like I would not wish all of the sleepless nights of insomnia that I had, all of the stress, all of the lost appetite um, that I had when I was trying to figure out product management. Um, I just would never want anyone to go through that again. And so it's really about, well, how can we go and solve these needs for people? I think in terms of, in terms of teachability, something that I've generally learned is when folks aren't latching on to a concept, most of the time it has nothing to do with the person and it has to do with the method that that information is being conveyed. Right? I think something that I learned very early on is I actually used to be a, a tutor. 
And so I used to teach students um, in biology, chemistry, um, physics, math, whatever. And something that was really weird for me is when I would go to lecture, right? And I would see like the professor talk about something, a lot of people would just straight up not get it. And so they turn to me and they say, well, Clement, what did he just say? And it's, oh, well, what he said was this, this, is this. And I said it in almost the same words, but then they all got it. I was like, oh, the delivery actually matters a lot, oh. right? Like, even if the content is the same, the delivery changes whether people can actually absorb it or not. And so something that I've learned the hard way, right, is what you don't want to do if you're trying to share concepts with people is you don't want to give them only an abstract framework, right? Because then it's, oh, well, this is so academic. There are all of these first principles. I don't actually know how to implement this. But on the flip side, what you don't want to do is you don't want to just tell them, well, here's how I did it, because then they will incorrectly infer, oh, well, that's the only way to go do it, right? And then right. they will try to apply what you did in that situation in a totally different context where it doesn't work. And so really kind of the sweet middle spot, and I found this to work really, really well for my students, my clients, et cetera, is to pair the two together to say, I have been through the situation before myself, here's how I did it, but then here's a framework for how you can do it. And here are the different factors that you should watch out for so that you can actually apply this to you yourself in your situation, right? And so when you marry together, hey, here's a real example of how something got done. Some people have things to latch onto, but then you propose the counter piece of, but by the way, the way that I did it isn't always gonna work. Here's the actual more scalable way to think about the problem. Here's how you would actually digest it. Here's how you would bend it to your particular needs. It's so much easier for people to actually grasp and to actually be able to use that, right? And so I think ultimately it boils down to how are people being delivered that knowledge? And I'm certainly not saying, right, that like, um, my delivery is like the only way, um, right? Because I think there are some folks who respond a lot better to humor and I am not the funniest person in the world. That's totally fine. And so like there are much more humorous product managers and they're doing a great job in terms of being able to teach core concepts. Um, on the flip side, like some people um, care a lot more about uh, what's it called? Some people, um, you know, they respond a lot better to um, written form. Some people respond really well to podcasts. Some people respond really well to video, right? And so something that I don't do as good of a job as I could be doing, right, is like using a lot of very visual diagrams. Some other folks are really good at that. And like other people respond really well to that. And so I think it's all about understanding how do people learn, kind of what are the ways that work well for them, and not trying to be everything to everyone, but really identifying what are the things that what are the audiences that I can help the most? What are the ways in which they need to be helped? And how can I bring them that value so that they can take that with them and be able to, um, to, be able to accelerate their careers? And so that's really how um, I think about the work that we're doing here at Product Teacher is providing additional alternatives for learning that doesn't necessarily require you to go learn it the hard way on the job, right? Like where you run face first into everything, just because I have done a lot of running uh, running into walls face first. Um, my face is kind of bruised. And so I don't <laughs> want other people to run into that. And I've seen that, you know, the power of delivery really does matter, right? I think many times, right? Like there might be, you know, an essay that is out there, but maybe it's not going into enough depth, right? So how can I help to bring in even greater set of clarity around that, right? Or maybe, hey, you know, this thing has already been written about, but you know, there's a lot of folks who prefer video. So then how do we record something for them, right? And so it's really about um, expanding the options that people have to be able to learn about product management in a way that suits them and their learning styles and their needs. Like that's really what we're all about. Sweet. Um, so I know um, 
I know your writing, um, particularly in Medium. That's how I got mm -hmm. to know you. Um, but are you also doing um, video a lot more now? What are the different mediums you're already using now? Um, I would still say that writing is still my core strength, right? So um, I'm, I am much more polished when it comes to writing down my thoughts. And I think it's a lot more scalable that way, right? Because you don't necessarily have to, you know, catch me on a good day to then hope that like you get the right amount of knowledge, right? Like you can actually see um, kind of all that knowledge and come back to it over and over again. But on top of writing, um, of course, um, there's audio, right? And so I am a big fan of um, jumping onto podcasts because I know that, you know, um, folks want to be able to learn kind of in all aspects of their life, right? Like maybe, hey, you know, I'm currently washing the dishes, right? Or I'm currently walking to work, or I'm um, currently waiting for a train. Well, why shouldn't I take this time to learn, right? And so um, audio is so much more portable than writing, right? Like it's a lot harder to try to read something while you're washing the dishes, right? Like you're probably going to mess something up and so you don't want to do that. Um, and so um, we don't have a podcast here, a product teacher, um, but we're always happy to jump on and, you know, again, very humbled and very honored to be a part of a part of the show here. Um, and then on top of that, we also do video. And so something that I found the hard way is that a lot of folks respond better to an actual human being there. It drives a lot more of that warmth and empathy and, you know, is just something that people can relate to a lot better. And so I am not a video native, I guess, like video is not the thing that I love doing the most. But I found that it is so important for our students to have, right, to actually be able to see that, you know, hey, Clement is going to walk through these concepts and that, like, I can see Clement's face. I can actually hear his tone um, in terms of all of these different concepts. And so that way I feel like I actually have a mentor right there um, who is over my shoulder and really helping me work through these different challenges where kind of just in text it can feel very impersonal or it can feel very cold, right? And so um, we have been releasing a few self-paced video courses. Um, one of them is, you know, how do you solve the PM interview? Like, I think many times people try to say, oh, well, how do I hack it, right? Or how do I um, use these tips and tricks? And it's not about tips and tricks. It's about the hiring organization is in pain. Let's solve that pain. Let's identify that pain and then help them understand the value that we can bring to them, right? So that's solving the PM interview where um, I go through some of the most common PM interview questions and provide, again, that framework of here's how you can tackle it in all these different shapes and forms. But then also here's a real example that you can actually lean on so that you understand what does good look like, what does bad look like. Um, so that's solving the PM interview. Um, we also have Succeeding as an Associate Product Manager, um, which is our most recent uh, released uh, video course, where something that I've seen happen too many times is, you know, if you're lucky to be at, let's say, Facebook or Google um, as, as a PM intern, right, or as an incoming product manager, you have all of these really great organizational onboarding resources. But if you're not, right, like if you're an associate PM at a startup, many times you're just kind of thrown off the deep end and it's, hey, good luck, right? Like you'll learn through trial by fire. And I used to be there, it wasn't fun. Um, so let me help you onboard by providing you with all the things that I wish I knew when I was an associate product manager, right? So getting really crisp on, you know, this is how you work with designers. This is how you work with engineers. Here's how you're being measured, right? Here's how um, you can continue to uh, move up the career ladder, right? Like this is what success looks like. This is how you work together with your manager. This is how you work with customers. Um, and so we've found that by providing that in video form, there are a lot more people who will actually kind of use all that knowledge from start to finish, right? Like they'll actually go and watch through all of the videos and actually take all of the um, quizzes. Whereas if it was just a lot of different essays on all these topics, right? Kind of 
Um, there's no way for me to be able to put all that into a single essay. Like that's just way too long and it's not consumable. But on the flip side, there are too many ways for you to say, well, I've already read one. I don't want to read more, right? Like my eyes hurt. And so like, I'm out. Um, whereas in video, like we generally see that people will actually go from start to finish and they'll actually get all of that compounding value of connecting all of these concepts together. Right? And so um, we've seen that video is incredibly important for our audience to be able to absorb concepts and be able to apply them. And so even though that's not necessarily my native strength, um, it is something that I am heavily investing in, in terms of getting better at, because we do see that, you know, folks really find that valuable. And so I want to be able to be there um, to help them accelerate their careers. Yeah. I love how you're um, in a way pointing again and again at how you're learning about what the people need and how you're adapting. Um, that's, that's, that's amazing. Um, could you tell um, a bit more about the journey that product teacher and you yourself have gone through since that first idea you had of, hey, just talking to people is not going to scale. I better start writing it down to now where it has become your primary focus. Uh, what has changed along the way? What have you been learning? For me, something that I learned, uh, how do I phrase it? Something that um, I learned the hard way and something that I see a lot of um, aspiring PM influencers um, not fully grasp yet is when you're writing about your experiences and you're trying to share that to other people, you wanna focus on their pains. You don't wanna focus on you yourself, right? And so um, I still remember like the first three or four articles that I wrote, wow. Like I look back and they were very braggy, I guess. They were very much like, hey, here's the way that I did things. And it was really cool because then I got these results. And it was very much me trying to inflate my own ego. Um, it was very much me trying to um, make myself look good instead of really coming from a servant leadership perspective of what is the problem that you're dealing with reader um, and how do i understand that pain how do i provide you with a solution for it um, and so when we step away from saying hey you know i'm writing this thing because i want to look good or because i want lots of people to read it i want a lot of reactions i want a lot of shares you start thinking about, well, what is the pain that that person has, right? Which audience am I trying to target? Am I targeting someone who's trying to break into product? Am I targeting someone who's already a product manager? Am I targeting someone who's in management, right? From that perspective, what are the pains that they have? And how do I structure this content in a way that's really going to help them be able to take action? Right? Because what we want to do, again, is the article or the learning resource that you provide, it is not the end goal. The end goal is changing behavior, changing processes, right? And so for me, I've found that, you know, whether it's an essay that I'm writing or a podcast um, or it is a video or it's a speaker event, all of these things are all about how do I drive an action that will help people move past the pains that they currently have and get them to a better place, right? And when we do that, because we have created value for other people, they will naturally say, oh my gosh, this is so helpful. Hey, I'm going to share this with someone else, right? Hey, I want other people to look at this because I got so much value from it, right? And so um, that has then naturally led to that growth in terms of um, people really resonating with the content that we've been pulling together. And so I would say for folks who are looking to get their voices out there, right? Um, of course, having the courage to go out and actually put out your voice is really commendable, right? And so please do that if you can. Um, because it will really help you solidify the knowledge that you already have in your own head and provide value to other folks who might need your perspective specifically. But on top of that, once you've gotten something out there, right, like actually take the time to reflect on, well, who am I trying to solve a pain for, right? What is that pain? And am I sure that the way that I've designed this product, right, whether it's an article or whether it's a speaker event, 
am I sure that this is actually going to drive a real action in their life that will help to solve their pain, right? And when you start thinking about things in that perspective, um, people will start to naturally grasp onto, oh my gosh, this is such a powerful and useful resource. It did something for me, right? It wasn't just, hey, this is something that is really inspirational, right? And like now I'm super inspired, but I'm still not sure what to go do, right? It's, here's a very specific action. Here's a specific framework that you can take with you so that you can go and move past this challenge and continue to level up in your life, in your career, et cetera. Um, when you're able to provide that to people, they will naturally be really grateful. They will naturally say, that was super helpful. I wanna share this with other people so that, that way they can also benefit too. And you can then start to see that um, organic growth. Um, that's a lot more powerful, I think. Um, so something that I have personally uh, focused on, right, is it's all about identifying what is the pain that people have and then designing a solution to that pain, um, whether that is in the form of an essay or a speaker event um, or a video. And by doing so, right, like that is what actually creates value. And then we can capture that value um, to the business here at Product Teacher, right? Um, because of course it is a for-profit business. And so, you know, I do have to go earn money to be able to eat and take care of my family. Um, but if we don't create value for people in terms of the content that we're putting out, well, then why should they give us our, their attention, right? You know, there are so many other things that they could be reading. There are so many other things that they could be doing with their valuable time. And so we should give them value. We should create value for them so that that way they have something that's super, um, something that's actionable that they can refer back onto. And with that, then they will come back to you again and again, because they know that you are a source of value creation for them. And so that's really how um, I've evolved my way of working. I think very much in the past, I would say, hey, you know, I really want to talk about um, me and like the great things that I've done. And it's no, 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 no. What is the pain that other people have? How do I solve that pain? And another thing that I've, I've, I've learned over time is there's very much imposter syndrome, right? It's very much, oh, well, how do I know that the thing I'm putting out is good enough, right? What does good enough even mean? I think as long as we focus on, hey, can I solve a pain for just one person? Right? Like, let's find one person who has this specific pain and let's go get that pain solved for them. If you can do that, then kind of the magic of scalability, right? Like the magic of having things on the internet is that other people will naturally come to you, right? And so as long as you focus on creating real value for just one person, even if that person is your past self or that person is one of your mentees, um, if you can create that value for them, you don't need to worry so much about imposter syndrome, right? It's not so much, oh, can I get, you know, 10,000 views, 100,000 views? It's more about, can I solve this pain for just that one person? And if I can, then I'm gonna go put it out there and someone's going to get value from it, right? Very few people will go and criticize you for trying to help. Um, and a lot of people will be very grateful when they see, oh, well, you actually tried to tackle this problem that I don't know how to go get solved. And I feel a lot better solving it. Thank you for that. Right? And so I think that's really the way that I see kind of the two sides of not being overly egotistic, right? It's not about like me promoting myself. It's about how do I solve a pain for someone? And then also not on the flip side of being too hard on ourselves. Like it has to be perfect the first time out. It's as long as we can solve the pain for one person, that is enough and it will naturally scale on its own. And so that's really how I've been thinking about um, creating value for others through product management resources. Um, I love how you um, kind of, the, in the background, there's always this product management approach. Uh, uh, and I totally love this idea because you're, you're thinking in terms of um, how do I solve the problem of imposter syndrome, right? You go down to the first principles and you say, well, is it gonna help at least one person, right? 
Um, do I still mm -hmm. want to do that? Yes, let's do that. Now, the second thing becomes a scalability problem. And you're always solving problems rather than judging anything or starting from an assumption that it's going to be going to be perfect. And what I particularly also, you didn't say it in those terms, but you were advising people um, and then you started writing in a way you did your discovery in practice, right? So you figured out that there was an audience yeah. uh, and you were not kind of uh, going from quitting a, a running gig from one day to let's start this new thing um, the other day. Um, mm -hmm. How was that process? At what point did you, um, did you consider the discovery done and what was that moment of decision-making where you said, hey, okay, this is going to be a full-time thing now? I would still say that the discovery is honestly never done. Um, I'm still discovering, you know, what are, what is really going to provide the most value for, um, for the folks that are trying to learn more about product, right? Kind of what are the different segments that are out there? I mean, how do I provide value to each of these different segments in terms of their specific pain, right? So I think, um, first, my discovery is definitely not done yet. And I think I will never be done, right? There will always be more to learn in terms of what are the, new pains that are coming? What are the new segments that exist? Um, and so that's something that, you know, I definitely want to keep in my own mind, right, is there's no resting on laurels, kind of, no matter how much we ship, there will always be more that we can do to help others. And we cannot help others until we first discover who are they and what are their pains, right? Because if we don't know who they are, we won't understand their perspective, their decision-making rationale. We won't understand kind of their day-to-day -day lives, their goals, their fears, right? And then once we have that, then we can identify what is their pain and then how do we help them through that pain, right? So um, still very much discovering. I definitely wouldn't say it's done. But in terms of, you know, making the move, for me, it was very gradual. I think it wasn't something where I said, hey, you know, I'm going to turn, um, you know, product management education into my full-time work. Um, you know, at the flip of a switch, right? I think um, I had been providing kind of one-on-one -on -one advice for folks, maybe for at least for six months to nine months, I was providing that one-on-one -on -one advice. And it was very much when I started to hit the limits of scalability of, okay, there are way too many phone calls right now. I, I'm not, I don't have enough time to eat. I don't have enough time to sleep. We need to do something differently. And that's when I started to move into a different form factor. I started saying, okay, well, I'm going to take the advice that I have. I'm going to put it into these email templates. And so when people reach out and say, hey, Clem, I want to book a call. It's okay, well, here's this email template that will address 90% of your questions. If you still want to get on the phone, I can. Um, but if not, like here's this email, right? And so um, that worked up until it stopped working where I was sending way too many emails. And it's okay, I'm not using email as my distribution anymore. Let's just take this knowledge and put it into an article, mm -hmm. right? And then once I had these articles, then people started reaching out to those and it's okay, well, that's not scaling anymore. Now it has to be a book. And now, oh, now the book is not scaling. So now it has to be videos. And then, oh, well, now that we have, videos and books and um, essays, right? Well, maybe this should be a full-time thing because clearly there's a lot of demand here, right? And so I think it was something that, you know, took a lot of time. And I still think of how we work here at Product Teacher as still very much a experiment, right? I think we are running off the hypothesis of, can this be a full-time business, right? What are the things that need to be true for it to be a full-time career? Um, and then going and identifying is this true or not? And kind of working through those different um, components. Right? And so um, one of the things that we have a core hypothesis on is we believe that college students are really excited about learning more about product management. And we believe that there's this huge underserved market that we can help out with, right? But we need to prove that, right? Like I can't just go and say, oh, well, we're gonna drop everything and only go serve college students, right? It's, oh, but there are these other segments out there too. There are existing working professionals who want to pivot into product management. 
There are people who are already product managers who want to be able to level up. And there are people who are managers of product managers who want to be able to help their direct reports um, continue to grow, right? So like the, there are at least four different segments. And so it's not, hey, we're only going to focus on one. We're going to drop everything else. It's more, we're going to run experiments in tandem across these four segments. Who really needs the most help? And are we the best people to be able to help out with that, right? And kind of as we work through that, we might find that we'll balance our um, investment allocation, kind of where are we putting in our resources differentially across these four segments, right? And it's very much like learning as we go. It's very much still understanding, well, how, uh, what, what are the current needs of this market, right? Kind of what are their alternatives? What are their pains? And how do we position ourselves in a way that's going to be able to stand out? And if that experiment doesn't pan out, that's okay. Cause there are still these other markets that we need to go um, flesh out too. Right? And so um, that's kind of the process that we work through is very much, Hey, when we hit a particular limit, right? Like we can no longer continue doing things the way that we're currently doing it. Then we want to move towards a different way of working to be able to provide more of that value. I think one of the things that I started out with was one-on-one um, -on -one coaching, right? So teaching um, individual product managers about like the challenges that they had. And at some point, I just, it just started not working anymore. It's, well, what if you are based in Asia? What if you're based in Europe? What if you're based in um, Africa or Australia? And I'm based here in Pacific time in California. There's no way that we're going to find time to talk to each other, right? So how do I take this knowledge that I have, the knowledge that you want from me, and provide it to you in a way that will help to solve your needs, right? So that's why I said, okay, well, it needs to be a video self-paced course. It's not going to be a live course because I want you to be able to get access to this knowledge without having to wake up at who knows when to be able to talk to me, right? And so kind of um, when I saw that scalability issue, I said, okay, we know that there is value being provided, but the form factor is wrong. And so let's take the same value and turn it into a new form factor. On the flip side, if we have some market that we're trying to go help, right? Many times we'll try things and maybe they won't work and that's okay. Like it's all about being scientific. It's all about experimentation. And so we will try some things and sometimes they'll resonate and sometimes they won't. And that's totally okay. I think one thing that I learned the hard way and you know, it, it's, it's not good or bad, it's just the learning is there are fewer college students on LinkedIn than I had expected. Right? And so at some point in time, I was trying to help college students be able to spin up their own student organizations to, to learn about product management, right? Because, hey, this is a really great way to develop a market for learning about product management, for having these resources available. And so I did a lot of, um, I did a lot of resource sharing on LinkedIn to try to help you know, aspiring uh, product managers or college students be able to spin up these student orgs. And it didn't have traction and that's okay. Like I've learned now that, okay, well, many times, you know, when you're in college, like the first thing that you do is not get a LinkedIn, right? Like the first thing that you're doing is you're joining student organizations, you're going to classes, you're networking with folks offline. And so then LinkedIn is not the right form factor for that. Right? And so that's totally okay. Um, so that's really what I've been finding. It's still very much a continued discovery process in terms of knowing how to take that leap, right? I think if you have an investment thesis, right, you say, I think that there's all of this value here um, and I want to go try to capture it. Well, you also need to identify, well, how many how much resources are we going to put in? How much risk are we willing to take? And then being really thoughtful and structured about working through that risk, right? And so when I said, hey, you know, I'm going to do product management education full time, it wasn't like, hey, this is a passion project where I'm not going to be thoughtful and structured. It's, hey, we're going to quote unquote release this in phases, right? Where, hey, you know, by checkpoint one, if we don't hit this particular target, if we don't hit these metrics, we need to revisit it. 
by checkpoint two, which is, you know, some number of months out, kind of as we look at the burn down of the resources, right? Um, are we doing the right thing? Do we need to restructure the way that we're thinking about work, right? And so kind of there are all these hypotheses in place where if it doesn't work, then we trigger a reflection and determine whether we should continue or not, right? And so that has been really helpful because it also helps us have these natural built-in points of when do we want to bring on more folks, right? When do we want to continue to grow the organization so that we can provide more value? And so that's really how I've been thinking about it is, you know, if you're going to launch something, you can do mini launches, even while you're still full-time at work, and you can use kind of time boxed or um, money boxed, right? This is the amount of resources I'm going to put in. I expect it to move by this much. If it misses, then we need to do a retrospective and figure out why it missed. Even if it hit, we need to do a retrospective and figure out, well, why did this work? So that that way we can do the next phase even larger and continue to iterate that way, right? And so... I'm very lucky, I think, to be an entrepreneur who is coming from product management because the entire notion of we have limited time and resources and we need to run experiments to identify where is the return on investment. We need to figure out how to minimize risk and maximize upside and scalability. All of those concepts have been incredibly valuable in terms of actually running a scalable and sustainable business um, over the long run. So, yeah. Amazing. Um, we're coming up to the one hour mark. Um, I have a bit of more time, um, and I would love to ask a couple more questions if that is okay for you. Sure. Yeah. Um, so now we, we started talking about becoming an entrepreneur and how, how valuable some of the product management skills are, uh, when you go into that role. Right. And of course there's more, more, um, skills that you need to develop, um, or you might have developed along the way already. Um, mm-hmm. how, um, how do you balance the, the, the different roles, right? Because in a way, you are the content producer, you are the product expert, um, and you're also now the entrepreneur or the, the person who has to think in terms of business continuity um, uh, and perhaps also hiring and so on. I'm still doing all of those with Epic, right? So some days I'm doing accounting and other days I'm fixing up the roadmap and the other days I'm doing the interviews and so on. How do you balance all of that or, or have you already kind of decided to offload those aspects to, to other people in your team? Um, so in terms of, in terms of um, thinking through the different responsibilities, right? I, it, again, the nice thing is if you've worked with an engineering team before and you're already thinking about, you know, how do we manage all of these diverse responsibilities? Um, it becomes a lot easier to think about, okay, well, what should the mix allocation be? And so um, generally speaking, um, for each week that I'm going into, I already have a sense of, hey, we're going to spend this amount of time on maintenance, this amount of time on content creation, this amount of time, et cetera. Basically, we have this portfolio of here are the number of quote unquote story points um, that we're putting into this week. And here's where we're going to allocate it. Right. And engineering, you know, does the same thing. Right. We need to spend time doing refactors. We need to spend time doing maintenance. We need to spend time fixing bugs. But then we also need to go build the product. Right. And so we already are used to this more like portfolio approach of using time. Uh, there are some things that um, we absolutely need to go make sure happens. And so here is a a weekly breakdown of here's how much we're going to invest in each of the different levers, right? Um, and then, so that's part one. But then part two is, you know, at what point should you be delegating, right? Because product, in theory, we could do anything. But in practice, there are some things that we're not going to be the highest return on investment folks to be doing that work. There are other people who can do more of it, right? And so, yes, in theory, a product manager could come up with a wireframe. Yes, in theory, a product manager could come up with a test case. But is that really the best use of your time when there are other folks who are specialized in those areas? Probably not, right? And so um, some things that I have learned the hard way is 
yes, I could go edit my own videos, right? Um, in terms of creating those video courses, but I am not the best person at it. And also if I'm spending the time there, I can't actually be making more uh, value for students, right? And so it's, oh, well, this is something I need to go delegate. Um, and so, you know, that's where I've been working with a video editor in terms of, well, you know how to do this stuff a lot better than I do. And so you can, you can take this from me. And so then that way I can focus on driving the highest return on investment right. and not have to worry about trying to plug that into how much time do we have each week. Right? And then the other thing is the nice thing about looking at it from a week by week perspective, instead of just like, this is a locked percentage allocation over time, is then that way we can say, what is the priority this week? Right. So every week we have one core priority. What is the core thing that needs to go happen? So then that means that we're going to change the allocations this way. Right? And so, hey, you know, when it's about time to do taxes, um, then, of course, more of the accounting and finance components are going to shoot up that week. And that's totally OK, because that's work that we need to go do. And so because I know that that's the priority that week, I'm not going to also say, well, this is also the week where we're going to be doing you know, three different speaker events. Right. This is not also the week where we're going to be completing an essay. This is the week where we're going to be doing our taxes, right? And so by having this, um, this time boxed approach, where basically each week is independent, it's, it's correlated, but not like, um, they're, they're loosely related to one another, but they're not like necessarily locked to each other by making sure that each week has only just the one priority. That way we can make sure that we are allocating resources and time to fit the needs of each week, to fit the needs of that core priority without burning out. Right. Right? Because we don't want to be there doing everything ourselves all the time. Like we will, we will burn out and not be able to continue producing value over the long run. And then also having the humility, I think, to say, well, I'm not the best person at this thing and there's someone else who can do it. And so if I can let them do it, right, then even though, yes, in the short term, there is a new cost that I'm incurring, the amount of additional value that I can create with that cost, that return on investment is worth it. Right? And so I think the biggest thing that has been helpful for me is in terms of founder time. And I see this mistake happen a lot, actually. A lot of founders treat their time as free. And when you do that, then it's natural to insource all the work to yourself because it's, well, if I am free, right? And there are all these things that need to go happen, well, then I should just go do it, right? And they basically devalue themselves and they burn themselves out. But instead, when you put a value on yourself, right? Even if you're not paying yourself that amount, if you put a value on yourself, then you have a much easier way to say, oh, well, should I delegate this work or not? And so, um, Let's say, for example, and this is not real, but just putting out an example. Right? Like, let's say that I consider my founder time to be at, you know, $100 an hour. Right? Like, maybe I can create, you know, an incremental amount of value that is um, $100 to the business um, for each hour. And then I find a video editor, right, who only costs $40 an hour and is two times more effective than I am, right? And so in that sense, I, sh I need to offload to them immediately so then I can go take this founder time and use it to actually go create content, to use it to go create um, all of this other high value work that I need to go get done, even though it's a short term cost, it's actually a long term investment, right? Because we are delegating and outsourcing. So then that way we can really focus on what really matters. And so I think another thing that I see a lot, right, is because founders assume that their time is free, they kind of chase the largest opportunities that are available without asking, but is this the best return on investment opportunity, right? And many times you can go after many, many smaller opportunities at scale, and that's actually much bigger than the one large opportunity, right? And so by saying, okay, yes, I am deciding to go after this particular um, opportunity, but what amount of time do I think I'm putting against it, right? Like what is that founder time return on investment? If you can rank all of the founder time ROIs, right, you might actually find that the things that you do that maybe, you know, the unit prices aren't that high, but the unit volume is gigantic, 
maybe you should reallocate your time and not chase the really large thing. And sometimes it goes in reverse, right? Sometimes you say, oh, well, I thought I was going to scale really well, but here's this huge opportunity where there's only going to be one or two units, but that's actually so big. That has such a big return on investment that I have to go chase it. I'm going to go put scalability on pause, right? And so by taking this more measured approach of my time, right? Like I treat my own time, like the way that I treat my engineer's time um, back when I was an individual contributor product manager, like my time is constrained. I don't have infinite time. I don't want to burn out right, like the production folks, right? And so what is the stuff that will unlock us the highest return on investment? And anything that's not high ROI, we need to go outsource it, right? So I don't want my engineers, as an example, to be writing release notes because I can write the release notes for them. Right? Like they should focus on actually creating the actual code to ship the product. And so similarly, I should not be doing video editing because that's not the best use of my time. The best use of my time is to continue to create um, new videos or to be able to come up with new curricula to be able to coach uh, product organizations to level up, whether it's in, you know, how do I write specs or how do I onboard um, or how to do customer interviews or what have you. Right? So it's really taking that ROI approach with you, uh, no matter what it is that you're doing, um, whether you're a founder or you're a product manager or whether you are, you know, just any sort of professional. Right? That return on investment um, paradigm really helps us to really understand what is the best use of my time and how can I create the most value for the most people? So, yeah. I think that's that's perfectly well said. So I'm not going to elaborate on that. Um, I only have two more questions. Um, one is, sure. so what does a master product manager um, um, use with his team? What method, what, what agile system or non-agile system do you guys use? Is it Kanban? Is it Scrum? Is it XP? Is it a mix of something? Um, and um, perhaps after you answer, we can talk a bit more about why I asked this question. The way that I see it, right, a product manager always works in context and a product manager is always working with who are the users and customers that I've got, who are the business stakeholders that I'm working with, and what are who are the designers and engineers that I'm working with. And we shouldn't be treating design and engineering as kind of these static monoliths that are the same no matter where we go. We need to treat them as people who have independent histories, um, who have independent capabilities. And the reason why I say that is because in some organizations, in some contexts, Scrum is really, really powerful, right? In other contexts, Kanban is super powerful. In other contexts, it's rare, but it does happen. Actually, waterfall is sometimes the right way to go. And I know that that sounds like blasphemy coming from like a modern uh, startup product manager, right? Um, but it really depends on what are the needs of your counterparts what are the things that they understand and kind of what are the core challenges, right? And so in the short run, right, in terms of what is the process that I should go use, the short run answer is it depends on uh, what are the capabilities of your design and engineering counterparts? What are the expectations of your business counterparts and your um, customers, right? But then over time, I have generally found that moving to Agile, generally speaking, Scrum and not Kanban, that is generally the more scalable approach, but you can only make that statement if you're also committed to helping to level up all of your counterparts, whether that is in design or engineering or customer success or sales, to then align on these expectations, right? It's, hey, well, if we're going to be working in a Scrum style, you need to stop committing to customers that we're going to deliver whatever thing by whatever date, right? Because that's just not going to work because now we're moving in this more exploratory fashion where we're trying to deliver value iteratively, right? And if we cannot get, you know, customer facing counterparts to agree with that, then it doesn't matter how much we try to pursue Scrum, things will break down, right? And so it's all about, you know, in the short run, 
um, each organization will have a different set of needs. And so it's about understanding what are their pains? What are their goals? What are they capable of doing right now? And identifying the process that will work best in the moment. And then in the long run, we say, we generally want to aim towards Scrum Agile iteration, but um, we can't just move there. We have to actually go coach people and evolve them towards, these are the new expectations. Here is the rules of engagement for how we're gonna go get this stuff done. Here's what this means for each of us. And so we're gonna move there step-by-step so that that way it's not something that we just drop on them and they say, oh, whoa, like I didn't expect that you weren't gonna deliver by the state. Or, or oh, uh, I don't understand uh, kind of why we can't have these you know, really, really fleshed out design diagrams. Right? It's all about making sure that everyone is on the same page in terms of expectations before releasing that process and expecting them to work on those lines. Sweet, um, thank you for that um, wonderful answer. Um, the reason I ask is um, oftentimes I see that every time people try to switch to Scrum or Kanban or any of the methods, but these two um, are the, uh, let's say, the dominant ones, they always end up looking for their own customizations. Um, almost no organization I've seen kind of takes Scrum by the book. Um, there's always some some mm -hmm. changes to that, or when people do Kanban, there's still some changes. And um, at, um, at Epic, I kind of, the way I define what we use is kind of goal-based XP sort of a thing um, where we, mm -hmm. we just release stuff um, and we test it in production mm -hmm. and um, we use feature flags and every commit can basically be deployed um, and we prefer it that way and we are happier to break and fix than, um, than release at a certain cadence. Um, but we try to have a goal. And we have a review about it, and yeah. we talk about it a bit up front, and then in between, everybody does whatever they need to do, but that that is the goal. So kind of like in in our small team, we found something that works for us that kind of takes elements from all of these. Um, there's an aim, yeah. um, there's there's a sprint goal, so to say. Um, and, and in other organizations, I, I see a lot of um, almost fighting around that once people kind of get... Um, get too fixated on specific definitions and specific methods. Um, so how, how, do you, how do you go about educating people? Because you, you mentioned, right, you have to upgrade the organization, you have to get that buy-in and you have to get everybody to align on, on those ideals. Um, is there some sort of a golden rule that you zo zone in on to get that buy-in? I think the thing that I've found to be the most helpful is to treat the folks who are most likely giving you the resistance or the folks who are gonna be struggling with it the most and really taking the time to treat them as end users and to conduct a user interview with them um, and to really understand what, what are their goals and objectives and what are they the most scared about in terms of you moving into this new way of working and by really understanding what are the key points of concern that they have, we then start to address them, right? And so, um, something that is somewhat related, but not exactly this, is I remember at one point in time, um, I was trying to move uh, my organization towards being more customer centric. And that was very hard for that organization because in the past, the way that they had built up their market value, the way that they built up the revenue was having visionary leadership dictate what it is that we're going to go build. And so it's, well, the user doesn't know what it is that they want, right? And so we shouldn't listen to them. Like, we are the experts. We've been in this industry for 20 years, 50 years. And so why are we going to go listen to people who are just like off of the street, right? And it's, 
really trying to understand, well, what is the concern that you have? Well, I'm concerned that I've seen in the past when someone gives us their uneducated opinion that if we go build for it, it fails. That's okay. Well, we're not going to go just build what they say they want, right? It's all about understanding the why behind they say what they want. We're going to go and dig in and really understand kind of why the users are having this pain, why they think that solution is valuable or not, and not just taking at face value and implementing it because that's what our leadership was scared of. They were scared of, you're just going to implement whatever people tell you to go do. And it's no, 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 no. We want to talk to people to understand what is driving their decision-making process. And then we are still the ones as a company to decide what Go gets built. I just want us to be able to bring in that customer voice. I'm not saying that we're going to be held hostage by it. Right? And so better understanding what are the things that people are most scared about in terms of you know, the outcome or the process, we can then try to realign them of, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Here's what I meant instead, or by disagreeing committing and saying, well, we're going to be moving towards this process. And we're going to time bound it so that there's this experimentation time. And we're going to go see whether the thing that you're worried about comes up. And if it does, here's the way that we're going to prevent it or mitigate it from happening. And then if it doesn't come up, then it wasn't a problem, right? And so really taking the time to understand who are the people that are struggling and not just dismissing it out of hand and saying, no, 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 I know that this is the best practice, but actually taking that into account and then helping them move along this adoption journey I think has been the most powerful in terms of any kind of organizational change. And so, you know, even if you are moving towards, you know, hey, in the past we used this spec template and now we're going to go use this spec template instead, right? It's not about, well, the old one was bad. And so you're bad, right? It's, it's not about criticizing people. It's about, well, here's the value that the new one provides. And there are things that are missing from it that we used to have in the old one. Here are the different concerns that you have. Well, here's how we're going to mitigate these concerns, right? Like maybe the things that you had in the old spec template, it belongs in a separate artifact, right? And so here's how it would work in this process. Or maybe it's, oh, but I got burned this one time doing this, doing things in this way. And so that's why I added this section. And it's okay. Well, that root cause was actually somewhere else. And so let's talk about how to prevent that from happening, but not club it together with a spec template, right? And so really understanding what are the core objections that keep coming up and identifying what caused these objections to happen and being able to remove those obstacles, I think helps a lot with adoption, right? And even if you wind up in a situation where it's disagree and commit, at least you better understand why Why are they so worried? What are they concerned about? And so in that way, we can say explicitly, I hear your concern. I'm relatively certain it won't happen. And so to put it to the test, we're going to release it this way. We're going to see if it happens. If it does, then let's revisit the conversation and let's dig in. And so then that way they know, oh, you're listening, right? Like you're a partner. You're not just trying to run me over. I mean, you're not trying to dictate things to me. You actually treat me as someone who, you know, you understand me, you hear me, you respect my perspective. And by having that, that really helps make kind of this iteratively making the process better and adopting new processes a lot easier for lots of different organizations. So um, I'll try to summarize that. A good product manager <laughs> um, is a relentless <laughs> problem solver who uses every trick in the book uh, and, and tries to understand the users, their resistances, adds perspective, and gets things done. Um, Clement, it feels like we could continue talking for another five hours, so I'm going to try to bring us towards an end here. Um, last two things. If you had a giant billboard and millions of people would walk past it, what would you put on that billboard? That is a fantastic question. Um, what I would put on that billboard is um, to capture value for yourself, create value for other people first. And so that's what I would put on that billboard. 
Um, and then maybe the product teacher logo, <laughs> just to have something to route back to. Um, but really kind of that has been the core philosophy that you've heard me say kind of over and over again, whether it is the way in which I pivoted careers, whether it's the way in which I release products, whether it's the way that I release processes or the way that I create content, it's all about, we need to first identify what is valuable for other people. And then we want to create value for them. And once we've created that value for them, that's when we can capture that for ourselves. So that, so again, on that billboard, to, to capture value for yourself, first create value for others, Product Teacher logo. So yeah. Perfect. Um, and we're going to put the links to Product Teacher and everything else in the show notes as well. But um, could you um, spell out for our users where, where could they find you online? Um, so Product Teacher is at productteacher.com. So uh, no dashes, no spaces, no nothing. Um, and then in terms of uh, what you can find at productteacher.com, right, we have best practice essays and we also have self-paced courses um, if you are looking to level up. Um, we also have individual career services. So if you need help with resumes or interview prep, et cetera, we've got you. Um, if you're looking just for me in general, um, you can always find me um, on LinkedIn. So it's just Clement Cal, um, C-L-E-M-E-N-T, last name K-A-O. I'm pretty sure I'm one of the only Clement Cal's out there. Um, so feel free to reach out. Um, I am always available to help folks. Um, so yeah, so again, to find me, it's just Clement Cow on LinkedIn. Um, and then to find Product Teacher, it's at productteacher.com. Thank you, Clement. Um, folks, I can definitely attest to um, the quality and um, the clarity of Clement's writings. Um, I haven't yet tried out the self-paced courses, but I'm pretty sure they're going to be um, brilliant as well. I'm definitely going to go check them out. Uh, so for all the product managers out there, I think this will be useful whether you're just starting or if you have been around. Clement, thank you so much for your time. It's been it's been amazing. I have loved this conversation and I look forward to publishing this um, and hearing back the feedback from um, our users and, um, uh, and our friends out there. Yeah, same here. Thanks so much for putting in all the work. Um, and yeah, I am humbled to be a part of the show. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Clement. All right, ciao everybody. Thanks for listening to the Make It Work podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to like, comment and share. If you also want to make it work, stay tuned for more episodes.